questions of who is allowed to make what art arise with hilarious and thought-provoking outcomes in the feature film American Fiction. It stars Geoffrey Wright as the academic and writer Thelonious Monk Ellison, whose very literary novels, adapting Greek myths for the present day, have failed to make the bestseller lists. Facing criticism that his work isn't, quote, black enough, Monk writes a hoax novel under the alias Stag R. Lee, which, to put it mildly, leans into ghetto stereotypes. The book, however, becomes a commercial success and Monk finds himself having to embrace his literary alter ego in a very real way. Along with all of this, Monk is facing challenges closer to home with his elderly mother and his wayward brother. After working as a journalist at Gawker and later as a writer on hit shows like Watchmen, Masters of None and Succession, writer and debut director Cord Jefferson adapted the script for American fiction from the 2001 novel Erasure by Percival Everett. The film has been nominated for no less than five Oscars. Before we hear from director Cord Jefferson about American fiction, let's hear a clip from the film. Here we find our curmudgeonly hero, Thelonious Monk Ellison, played by Geoffrey Wright, in a large bookstore. Excuse me, uh, Ned, do you have any books by the writer Thelonious Ellison? Yeah, this way. Here you go. Right. Yeah. Wait a minute. Why, why are these books here? I'm not sure. I would imagine that this author, Ellison, is black. That's me. Ellison. Yeah. He is me, and he and I are black. Oh, bingo. No, no bingo, Ned. These books have nothing to do with African-American studies. They're just literature. The, the blackest thing about this one is the ink. I don't decide what sections the books go in, and no one here does. That's how chain stores work. Right. And you don't make the rules. This all started, I think, Cord, when you read Percival Everett's novel, Erasure. When was that, and how did that come about? That was December of 2020. Uh, I was reading it with no auspices. I just was looking for something new to read over Christmas break. And I uh, I found this novel, Erasure. I read a synopsis of it. I'd, I'd found it while reading uh, a review for a different book. And, and I decided, you know, it sounded interesting. And I went and picked it up and just fell in love with it instantly. I'd, I'd never encountered a piece of art that resonated with me deeper before or since. That, that That's a big statement to say. No piece of art before or since that's resonated so deeply. Why? How did it resonate so deeply with you? Well, the novel, uh, there's a lot of satirical themes about the lead character Monk's professional life, um, mostly being about what it means to be a black writer and sort of the restrictions that people put on the stories that black writers can tell, particularly uh, the idea that black writers are, 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 and the best black stories are about black trauma, um, about slavery, about inner city poverty, about gang violence, about drug addiction, all of these things that we sort of know to be kind of the the common themes of stories in in, in African American cinema, and um, Monk is frustrated by that, and I was frustrated by that as a as a TV writer myself. And then beyond that, there's a lot of family stuff as well. Monk has two siblings, for instance. I have two siblings. We have a a push and pull relationship the way that Monk does with his siblings in the book. My Monk's mother is ailing from Alzheimer's. My mother didn't die of Alzheimer's, but my mother did die of cancer eight years ago. And 
like Monk in the book, I, I moved home toward the end of my life to help take care of her. Uh, the father, my father, uh, is is uh, very similar to the father in the novel. Um, I love him very much, but he is he is overbearing. I think he'd admit that he's overbearing. Um, and so, just the the overlap between the 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 character Monk and sort of his life uh, started to, you know, it started to become eerie almost how much his mm. life resembled my life. And it felt like by the time that I was a hundred pages into the book, I knew that I wanted to try to adapt it into a film. It is quite extraordinary that something could resonate at both a professional and personal level uh, so m- much as you've just described, Cord. And and in fact, that's the way the film rolls, as the novel does as well. Um, it has both those professional and personal sides to, to Monk's story. Sticking with the professional side of things for the time being, you mentioned there that you had come across this kind of limiting presumption around what you might write in television, in film, and I think in journalism as well. Yeah, absolutely. I was a journalist for about eight or nine years before I started working in film and TV. And toward the end of my journalism career, I published this article called The Racism Beat. It was an essay about how uh, almost on a weekly basis, somebody was coming to me and saying, do you want to write about uh, this black teenager murdered by the police or this black teenager murdered by the police or this black teenager murdered by the police? And it felt like, oh, my job was just a revolving door of misery at that point. It felt like the a, uh, it's you know spiritually um, eroding to to just cover that all the time. And b, it felt like uh, what can I write about this that I didn't write about the week before when this happened or the week before when that happened or that other people hadn't written about for decades or centuries. It just felt like uh, there's is this really all that people want out of out of the story of the black experience in America. And so when I when I started working in film and TV in 2014, I was excited because it finally felt like great. We're not beholden to any of any realities. We're not beholden to telling true stories. We can we can get into anything we want to get into. And it wasn't long before people were coming to me and saying, "Do you want to write a movie about a black teenager being killed by the police? Do you want to write a movie about uh, gang members? Do you want to write a movie about somebody dealing crack in the inner city?" And it felt like, oh, even here, even in the world of fiction and fantasy, where we can write about anything we want to write about there's still an incredibly limited perspective as to what black life looks like. And that, you know, three months before I found the novel Erasure, I received uh, uh, a piece of feedback from an executive about a script I'd written in which they told me that they wanted me to make a character blacker. That note came through an emissary, of course, because they were afraid to tell me that uh, themselves. And I told the emissary, I will indulge that note if the person who gave it to you is willing to sit across from me and tell me what it means to be blacker, explain to me how how to make a character blacker, and I will consider making that character blacker. And of course, th- that note went away because I think the person knew they were going to commit a civil rights violation if they, if they actually went through with that meeting with me. And so, you know, this this was just a, uh, it was something that sort of came in to me in, in various uh, capacities and various iterations. But there was always the, the, the sort of the 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 implication was always that there is a um, black life is not as complex and nuanced mm. as everybody else's life, and that the stories that we want to hear about black people do not have the same depth and nuance and breadth and and variety as as other people's lives, and that that to me was obviously uh, uh, painful as a as a creative and, and and annoying as a creative, but also just as somebody who who watches film and television and reads books. That is that is a frustrating reality. 
One of the things that I, I really love about American fiction in that respect, it's dealing with this character of Monk, who is writing these wonderfully worthy Greek mythology, books of Greek mythology, great works of art, not making him a lot of money, not making his agent a lot of money, and not many publishers jumping up and down to to buy them. <laughs> um, so exactly. we we get him, we, we see him in that situation. But the way that you treat, and I guess this comes from Percival, Percival Everett's novel as well, the way that you treat the complexities around um, the presentation of quote-unquote black stories is so satirical and so comical. How important was it to you that it, that it was that, that it didn't become uh, po-faced in any way? Incredibly important. I think that, you know, to me, the firstly, race is to me, always ripe for comedy because race has this incredible absurdity in which that it is both real and not real, right? So if you talk to the vast majority of scientists, the vast majority of scientists will tell you that there's no basis for race in biology. That's sort of the, this idea that we are we are different people because of the color of our skin is absurd and that in fact we, we, we are far more alike than we are dissimilar. And so on the one hand, race is not real and insignificant. And yet on the other hand, we've created our institutions and our countries and our societies with the idea that it is real, right? So so, so on the one hand, race is not real, but racism is real. And so to me, that inherent tension and that absurdity of, of something both real and not real and both important and incredibly, both unimportant and incredibly important you know th- that to me is is a perfect is a perfect uh, a subject for comedy, and so I felt like it's it's any time you talk about race, it has to be funny because race itself is absurd and funny, and so I don't think you can talk about it without being funny. Secondly, I think that something that sort of that that I feel like so many Irish artists that I really like have also understand the idea that that. Um, if you lose the ability to laugh, that's when you really lost everything. And then sort of like, and that, and that, and that, uh, that you need to find ways to find joy in the misery. Um, and in fact, it would be a disservice to people who have really gone through, um, the tortures of, of, of the past to not acknowledge that they were also having fun and laughing and finding ways to celebrate. And so it's also important to me to just remind people that, yes, despite the difficulties, despite racism, despite all the problems that that, that are inherent with that, um, you have to find ways to laugh and have fun. And, 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 you know, that that that's what makes life worth living. You're helped along enormously by the casting of Jeffrey Wright as Monk, as, as the, 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 the main protagonist, and indeed Sterling K. Brown as his brother. And there are other great comic turns within the, within the um, film as well. I often wonder about how much fun is it on set when you're, when you're shooting a comedy or how serious a business, to go back to that old cliche, is the making of a comedy script and a comedy film. It's so fun. I mean, the, the the yes, it's we everybody took it seriously. Everybody was there because they were passionate about the material. But you know, from 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 the first day that we were on set, it was uh, it was as if everybody was was family. We we this was a movie with a limited budget, a limited timeline, so we never had time for rehearsals. We were just really just sort of like went in and 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 did it every day. Um, but fortunately the rapport that the actors had with each other, the rapport that the actors had with, with everybody on set was 
made it a delight to go to work every day. And something that Jeffrey, you know, I'd never directed anything before I directed this film. And so I didn't have anything to compare it to. But something that Jeffrey said that really stuck out to me that I think of a lot was Jeffrey said that he said that when you go to a film set, um, you can tell how much people care about the project based on how they work. And so he said everybody, he said that you go there and sort of the grips and the 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 um, the carpenters and everything, they work a little faster. They work with smiles on their faces. They sort of like when you when you need it to be silent, everybody's actually silent and sort of like is is respectful yeah. of that. And so he said that he could see very early on that people were working on something that they were passionate about, that they that they knew was going to be good. And so that was something that he picked up on early that I had no idea about. I just knew that um, having never directed anything before, I thought, well, why am I not more afraid to go to set every day? Why am I not sort of like sitting in my car, sick to my stomach and terrified and panicked about going in there? And I think that's sort of one of the reasons why I wasn't is because it was just a very healthy environment to come yeah. to work every day, and everybody was very grateful and gracious. And yeah, it was uh, it was the delight of my life. I need to uh, touch on the family issue as well, if we can, uh, Cord, because that aspect of the story is it is nothing. It, may I suggest to do with race? It has nothing to do with color. This is the experience of many people across many cultures. They kind of. They, they, as you talk, uh, talked about the push and pull of the siblings uh, and also the ailing mother and my sympathies on the death of your mother. In this case, nice. we're dealing with a mother who, who is has Alzheimer's, as you say. That kind of family, those family tensions, doesn't matter where you are, who you are, that's a universal story. Exactly. And that to me is one of the, one of the things that has made me so delighted about the, the, um, the reception to the film. It's been you know, we've shown the movie all over the world at this point. We've shown it to predominantly black audiences, to predominantly white audiences. We've shown it to older people, to younger people. Um, we've shown it in France. We've shown it in the UK now. Like, the movie has been, uh, has sort of traveled. And, and the thing that's been nice to see is that every kind of person at this point has come out of the theater and told me that they found something that, that they resonated with and that, that sort of spoke to them. And I think that that's because that family stuff really helps ground the movie, even if you can't even if you can't relate to Monk's professional struggles, even though I think that that's pretty universal, the idea that everybody wants the freedom to be who they are and that sort of what what the, the crazy things that people will do when they feel they aren't given the freedom to be who they are. But even if you don't even if you don't sort of feel that that speaks to you, most people are born into families and most people understand what it's like to have a family. And so that is that has been sort of a touchstone that I that I think has really worked to to make this story um uh, a one that resonates with a lot of different kinds of people, which has made me happy. Carl Jefferson, thank you so much for speaking with us on Arena. Congratulations, by the way, on the Oscar nominations. Good luck thank with Best so Picture and Best Screenplay. Kind of good luck to Jeffrey Wright, but we are kind of uh, uh, rooting for Killian Murphy. You'll forgive us if we do that. If we do that. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> Killian's, a, Killian's a wonderful actor. I'm, I'm very happy for him, but thank you so much for speaking with me. Hello? Hello, Paula. Arthur, so wonderful to hear from you. Um, I hope that you are with the man of the hour. I am indeed. He's right here next to me. Mr. Lee? Uh, yeah, this is he. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, God damn it. <laughs> yeah, I was a little confused at first, but... <laughs> We're both very excited to discuss Thompson Watt's offer. Yes, well, first of all, let me just say that all of us here at Thompson Watt are thrilled 
with my pathology. It is about as perfect a book as I have seen in a long, long while. Just, just raw and, and real. And Mr. Lee, is this, um, is this based on your actual life? Yeah, you think some bitch-ass college boy can come up with that shit? No, 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 I don't. And so he changes into Stagger Lee very quickly. A little bit of language, obviously, in the midst of all of that clip from American fiction. Jeffrey Wright's Monk embracing his literary alias, alias Stagger Lee, Stagger Lee, on a call with his publisher, Paula, played by Miriam Shore. American fiction is on general release in cinemas from today. Blackshore is a new drama series that starts on RTE1 this Sunday evening. The series follows Detective Inspector Fia Lucy, played by Lisa Dwan, a detective who is troubled by a past tragedy in which her entire family was wiped out at the hands of her father. Due to allegations of undue force, Fia finds herself back in her hometown of Blackshore investigating the case of a missing woman woman. The series is brought to us by the creators of Smother, written by the same writer, Kate O'Reardon, and I'm delighted that Kate joins us on on the line this evening. I I suppose Kate, uh, listeners will remember Smother, uh, epic family saga obviously centred on the the matriarch played by Dervla Kerwin. Beautiful, stunning uh, visuals on the County Clare coastline. You're in a different place, you're in a different mood I think with Blackshore. A very different mood, Sean. Yeah, it's um, it's a much darker piece. Uh, it's a procedural, which is a detective or a cop show, um, whereas Smother was about a very privileged Irish family, uh, women behaving very badly, um, with gorgeous clothes, um, and we kind of we've kind of moved away from that. Um, we just couldn't have the same family um, mm. having murders and, you know, thriller aspects because really it just, I mean, you know, it was high, it was high drama anyway. I mean, it wasn't meant to be realistic, um, but, you know, even we couldn't push the, the, the bonds of credulity any longer. <laughs> this one, this so, one, yeah, um, this is a much yeah. grittier type of uh, outline. And I suppose the fact even that we're dealing with the, the shore, we're dealing with a lake rather than the wild Atlantic and all of the drama that that brings. Yes. You know, the quiet, yeah. silent danger of a lake in some ways. That's it. Well, that's exactly what we were looking for. And kind of the stillness, the darkness of a lake and a small town and the secrets and the corruption that goes on. Um, I'm sure it does in small towns everywhere. Um, but I think that's kind of recognisable. And it was just it was just something different. And also, you know, we have to be aware of our foreign audiences and giving them different landscapes and different mm. images of Ireland. So all of that plays into it. And I think you, you, you were very keen in that respect in terms of the type of picture of Ireland that you were putting abroad, not a thatched cottage in sight, and you know, <laughs> and even the absence of, I suppose, of the of the wild Atlantic Sea uh, bashing up against yes. the coast. You, you're you're showing yeah. a different side of Ireland. Well, yes, um, and we just wanted to show, you know, that it isn't it isn't all about, as you say, thatched cottages, and um, you know, I'm sure there are some stereotype mm. images of us still. Um, I've not done a show yet with a pub scene. Um, we don't have a priest, um, and I just there's nothing wrong with that. And if you want that in your drama, I'm fine. I'm good with that. It's just we kind of want to show 
to a lot of people who would be quite surprised, I think, yeah. um, modern Ireland. Uh, you know, it's the youngest uh, nation in Europe per capita under 25. Um, and it's very progressive. And, you know, we were the first to have gay marriage and loads of things I never thought would happen in my lifetime. Um, so, you know, that's that's the Ireland that we're introducing yeah. to people, maybe for the first time. Yeah. And, and and you're doing it in particular via D.I. Fia Lucy, um, played by Lisa Dwan in the, in the series. She's back in her hometown of Blackshore. Um, I tell you what, let's listen to a clip first and I'll, we'll talk about <laughs> what's happening after that. Here she sure. is being, here she is with the, the local superintendent. She has to go back to her, her hometown and she's been introduced by the local superintendent to the rest of the, the team in the police, in the guard, the station, as well as her new partner who we'll hear at the end, Kane Furlong, played by Rory Keenan. Three undue force complaints in the last year. We both know you're here to take a little slap. And we didn't ask for you. And I'm absolutely certain you didn't ask for here. Actually, I did. They gave me choices. I thought it was time to come home. Right, so D.I. Fia Lucy is joining us on a temporary secondment from Dublin. I've assigned her to the Roisin Hurley case. Roisin and her were acquaintances back in the day, so she's well-placed to take it on. We all know Roisin Hurley has a habit of going missing. What makes you say that? Oh, she'd be drunk in a ditch somewhere or in someone's bed she's not supposed to be in. Webster. Sorry, super. Sometimes I use my gob the way other people use their elbows. <clears throat> Webster, a word in my office. There you go. Uh, that's that's T.I. Fia Lucy, played by Lisa Dwan, being brought. Actually, she'd introduce not to her partner there, but to another member of the team. And I think there's going to be a little bit of tension between the, those two particular characters, Webster and uh, D.I. Fia Lucy, as the series progresses. But one of the things that's noted, yes. she's, she's there. D.I. Uh, uh, Fia Lucy, the Lisa Dwan character, is back home because of three incidents, I think they say there, of undue force. She's no saint, this particular policewoman. <laughs> <laughs> no, the truth is she's an absolute pain in the butt um, and she doesn't go out to make friends. Um, she is really kind of the female equivalent of the archetype um, Lone Ranger mm. um, male detective that we've seen before, um, you know, and she's uh, she doesn't go around um, telling him about her problems and what her past was and everything. But clearly... When you see the actress, um, she's so, so good. Um, she's haunted. She's haunted by this terrible past. And she's put everything into her career. And while she mightn't be a very nice person, she's a fantastic mm. uh, policewoman. She's a fantastic detective. Um, <clears throat> and that is, that's really all that matters to her. But of course, those things were fine when she was in Dublin. And she was able to block out the past and just deal with the baddies. But now she's back. Yeah. And of course, who, who are the baddies? <clears throat> are the baddies the people that you grew up with? Um, are they the people in the town? Um, you know, will you ever be allowed to forget your past? Yeah, and obviously so, she has yeah. a very dark past, uh, given that there was, a, uh, you know, the deaths within the family. And again, that that's something quite dark within the, the series as well. But I wondered, um, Kate, in terms of the writing of, of all of this, 
you, I, I presume you start out with some kind of rough idea and I'm, I'm guessing that D.I. Fia Lucy coming back to her hometown is a starting point. But it's not just you sitting at your typewriter and looking out the window for, for inspiration. It's a, it's a team of writers that's involved here. Talk to me about the dynamic of that, how you keep control over your characters and your, your ideas in the midst of lots of other ideas coming from people in the writer's room. Well, we love the writer's room. <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry, I've a fog in my throat. Um, no, I, it's just the most dynamic, exciting thing. Um, and I never try to prescribe what you can and what you can't do. Uh, and it will go down to about maybe their fourth draft. And then I might look and say, well, that doesn't entirely tally up with the character that we set out with. And then anybody's perfectly free to say in the room, actually, I think this would and this is the reason why. And it's very democratic and everybody listens to everybody else. And it's not like I get the last word nine times out of ten. I don't get the last word. I wish I did. Um, But, you know, that's the process. And then you look at the finished result and you think, well, I'm really glad that somebody stuck to their guns because actually it really works. And that's why you want to work with other writers, because if it was just me, and I had to make all the decisions and write all the scripts. It's very draining. Mm. And also it's so one-sided. I can only ever see it from my point of view. And that's why when another writer comes in and writes a scene so completely different to the way that I would have approached it. And you think, actually, that's a million times better than I would have done it. Good for you. So I love all of that. And we have the same fabulous production company in Dublin, Treasure Firms. Um, it's had, all the same yeah. team. Uh, and, and yeah, I'm wondering how yeah. different that is, because you, I know, it, particularly at the beginning of your writing career, you had worked in travel and in, 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 in before that. But at the beginning of your writing career, and maybe during that time, still working in the travel business, you were writing short stories. That's a very solitary activity. And I'm guessing writing a novel is a solitary activity. Yes, there were plays there. That's a more collaborative approach, perhaps, as well, because the actors and the production bring something to it. Um, have have you do you still manage to do those more solitary types of writing? Um, I am kind of working on the idea for a play, which I would love to go back to do something on the fringe for theatre. Um, I haven't done theatre for years. I haven't done a novel for years. It's just, it's the mountain that you have to climb. It's 300, 350, 380 pages. You might have a cracking opening page and an opening paragraph and then you're on your own it's just you in a room and you've no idea nowadays they don't even buy in advance you've no idea whether it'll even be published um so it's you know by the time the gestation period is at least a year then Mm. it's another year minimum to write it it's another year before they publish it and i'm not getting any younger Don't ask me my age, thank you. Um, So it's like, yeah, so telly is quick and it's like Mm. collaborative. And, you know, I was telling somebody recently, there's coffee in the room and donuts and stuff like that. Really important (laughs) things. It makes sense to be important things in life. (laughs) Really important things, yeah. Yeah. Let's listen to another clip from from Black Shore because I want to get a sense of the the darkness because it does go into dark places. This is a, a point a little bit later into the first episode where a body has been found, the body of the missing woman. Uh, found in the lake that I spoke about earlier on. G.I. Fia Lucy is there with her partner Kane Furlong and this time we will hear Rory Keenan and of course it's the coroner that's pointing out 
the findings uh, regarding the body in front of them. We got plastic fibres from a rope, the type you see on practically any boat. I'm thinking tied to something heavy to keep her underwater and water movement must have prized it loose. So we're looking for someone with a boat or access to a boat? Well, Lake's pretty much a thoroughfare these days. A lot has changed since you grew up here. Well, my father was coroner back then. Did you know her? Yeah. A long time ago. She was kind to me. Must be someone she knew. Someone she trusted. It's rage, or fear, or panic, or maybe all three. Any questions? Did she suffer? I can't say for sure, but uh, given the depth of the penetration, I'd say it was instant. So there you go, the coroner explaining to Rory Keenan's Cian Forlong and Lisa Duan's D.I. Fia Lucy exactly what happened to the woman who is in the body that's in front of them on the table. Um, Kathleen or uh, Kathleen is, is with me this evening uh, talking to... Kate uh, O'Reardon is with me this evening speaking about Black Short, the new RTE drama which starts on television on Sunday evening. I wondered about that aspect of the procedural, uh, Kate, in that I suppose there has to be a certain amount of exposition in the procedural, striking that balance between giving the information that the audience must get, the viewer must get to be able to follow the plot and having the characters grow and other stories seep in. That's quite a a challenge, I would guess. It is, it is. Um, And even within the genre, there are subgenres. Like there's the cosy murder mystery like Midsummer Murders, possibly Vera kind of goes into mm. that. Um, and then you've got your much darker, like the, um, uh, I think his name is Bill Pullman in The Sinner. Um, and it's, you know, it's just people love a procedural. And some are really fast and some are a slow burn. And sometimes people just want gorgeous scenery and a quick story. And it's almost like a crossword. They're figuring out the different clues and everything. But we said from the beginning that what our sort of intellectual property would be, that you're really going to go into the characters because normally the partner is somebody at home. Very often it's a male. He's Mm. the male detective. He's got a long-suffering, enduring wife who ends up cooking a meal for the main detective. (laughs) And, (laughs) And I feel like I've seen it all a million times before. So I just thought some friction between them and some real family stories that we can get our teeth into. Yeah, no, not at all. And quite a cast you have to tell those stories. I mean, they'll just list off some Lisa Dwan, we've already mentioned Ali Nikhir on Rory Keenan, Amy DeVroon, Aid McCardle, Stanley Townsend, Jade Jordan, Andrew Bennett. It is a, a real star studded cast. Kate, thanks so much for, for speaking with us this evening. That's writer and executive producer of the new RTE drama Blackshore, Kate O'Reardon. You can see the first episode of Blackshore on RTE One television this Sunday evening. 9.35. You can also stream it on the RTE player. And so to our album releases for this week, it features the much-anticipated debut from the act of the moment, The Last Dinner Party, all-female London-based quintet, getting magazine covers before they had released any music. Does their debut album live up to the hype? Vera Solo, 
also known as Danielle Ackroyd, daughter of Ghostbuster Dan Ackroyd. I'm sure she loves having that said after her name. She releases her second album, Peacemaker. And Jay Mascus, frontman of the alternative rock band Dinosaur Jr., releases his fifth solo album, What Do We Do Now? We'll start with The Last Dinner Party. Their debut single is called Nothing Matters. The opening section there of Nothing Matters from The Last Dinner Party, the cleaned up version of, of Nothing Matters from The Last Dinner Party. Alan Carr and Louise Bruton are our reviewers on this Friday evening. Louise Bruton, I have to come to you first and I hope objectivity will still exist. You interviewed the ladies of The Last Dinner Party earlier today, was it? No, no, I did not. Oh, no, At did. all. <laughs> I beg your pardon, I, I thought you had. Anyway, well, tell me who they are. Uh, they are uh, this London quintet, as you said. It's Abigail Morris, Lizzie Mayland, Emily Roberts, Georgia Davies and Aurora Nujefi. Mm. And they all met in 2020, uh, or three of them met in 2020, just before they were start university. And they had this great big idea, let's start a band. Yeah. And very luckily, they all seem to have the same literary and classical influences and very highbrow lyrics and very grandiose instrumentation. And because of COVID, obviously, their first gig was until 2021. And then by 2022, they were supporting the Rolling Stones in Hyde Park. So there's been a lot of uh, furore around them, a lot of uh, accusations that they could be Nepo babies yet to be confirmed. But because their quick rise to success is the type of thing that doesn't happen too often. And the people who are angry are the ones who haven't had it. (laughs) Often the case that... (laughs) (laughs) That people who don't have the thing give out about the others who do have the thing, whatever that may be. I noticed when this album started out, I have to say, Alan, that it starts with a a track called Prelude to Ecstasy. And it's like a big operatic overture, actually, a rock operatic overture. It does start up and it starts at quite a punch. Absolutely. Uh, you know, starting an album with a kind of an orchestral overture might just smack of pretension. But this is what I like about this album. It is incredibly pretentious. It is portentous. It, it is extravagant and flamboyant. But it takes a hell of a lot of verve and talent and confidence to carry mm. this kind of thing off. And in regard to the, you know, the sniping at them that their media, or sorry, kind of industry plants, I remember Suede had to put up with this 30 years ago. The Arctic Monkeys had to put up with this 30 years ago or 20 years ago, rather. It seems to me that uh, the industry has grown so cynical that they just won't accept that people can be extremely talented. And I think this is borne out on this album. I I think that Abigail Morris, who's got this extraordinary voice that can go from a whisper Mm. to this cut glass hauteur within within a few seconds of a song, she describes what they set out to do as overarching maximalism. And she does it extremely, they do it extremely well. They're flamboyant, they're fun, they've got great voices and great ideas as well, Sean. They look brilliant. I can feel the tension in the studio as as Alan was saying all of that, Louise. I don't think you're in agreement. I, I just, I think I was reminded a lot of the darkness when I was listening to this mm. and it's just that, that type of flamboyance that was once quite ridiculous now seems to be quite um, shiny. And <laughs> I, I would love to see them in the live setting. I just found that there was just 
almost too much to take on. Like there was Gregorian chanting. There's like glam rock 70s influences. There's pan pipes. There's pa- yeah, I mean, I love a pan pipe <laughs> most of the time. But it just, it just, I felt that there was a lot going on. But I particularly, there's one song that I did really, really love and that's On Your Side, which I think is like this vampiric reworking mm. of The Pretenders I'll Stand By You. Just a gorgeous song about what do you do in, in the darkest hour. Yeah, I'll, I'll go to another track that has a little bit of the theatricality there, I think, as well. This is Caesar on a TV screen. And I'm falling like the leaves I follow your There we go. And we can get a sense within that song how this, this, the styles can shift from, from moment to moment, never mind from song to song, as Louise mm. was suggesting earlier on. And there are some lovely harmonies in there. Does this album work for you? Does it live up to the hype, Alan? I think it does. I mean, I, I try to avoid the hype um, as much as I possibly can. I, I think that any album that manages to kind of recall Susie Sue and the Banshees and Roxy Music and Sparks and even Kate Bush is and does doing it, OK. And does it move beyond being derivative of any, of any or all of those? I, I think it does. I think it transcends its influences very well. I mean, we're talking this doomed, swooning romance going on. The lyrics are very over the top. That song there you've just played, Caesar on the TV, she, Abigail Morris clearly has a Napoleon complex. Later on, she writes a song about kind of uh, the, the candle wax melting in my my veins. She's mm. got a Joan of Arc complex. So the literary references are highly pretentious and highly portentous, but hugely enjoyable. There's a lot of great melodies going on oh. here as well and great, great vocals. Stars. I really liked it. I would give it four and a half. Out of four and a half. I don't think that's what's going to happen on the other side of that desk. Louise yeah, Bruton. Well, no, I'm not denying their talent. I'm not denying that they have all their own skills and it's not because of who their fathers or mothers may or may not be. Uh, but yeah, it's it's. I think it's an exhausting drama sock <laughs> exhibition. <laughs> an exhausting drama sock exhibition gets how many stars? Uh, uh, like I know it's a four, but in my heart it's a three. <laughs> okay, <laughs> in your heart it's a three. You can't stretch. You can't stretch that far. The last dinner party, Prelude to Ecstasy is the debut album, a much anticipated debut album from them. Let's move on then to Vera Sola. <laughs> Nepo baby, uh, here we go. It's, it's so unfair just because she is somebody's so- daughter. She has to be somebody's daughter. It happens to be Dan Aykroyd and Donna Dixon. Um, but she didn't kind of push herself out into the front, did Vera Sola initially, uh, is my understanding, Louise. No, she seems to be quite a reserved character. And obviously with a, an, now as striking as mm. the name was when I was reading up about her, I was like, God, that's quite a coincidence. Her name's Danielle Aykroyd. Wonder if she, if that was, mm. if her parents were a fan, but she was quite reserved, and it was only she was only coaxed into becoming a performer by joining her friend's band as a bassist, and then it was with her debut album, 2019's Shades, that people heard her sing. Right. Let's listen to a track from the new album. This is called "I'm Lying." That's me tapping out. Hello. I feel safe with you. And there we have a little section of I'm Lying from Vera Solo, uh, Sola and her new album, Peacemaker. Louise mentioning before that, Alan, about the success of her, her uh, debut album. Mm. How does this one measure up? Does she, is, she, is she giving us more of the same? Is she going to some new place? Well, Shades was the debut album in 2018 and she played and recorded and arranged everything on, mm. on that album. This album is quite different in that she 
does have a quite an ensemble with her. She recorded in in Nashville with uh, Kenneth Pattingale of the Milk Carton Kids, the Grammy-nominated uh, band. So it marks quite a shift, I think, from the debut album. This this album sounds a, more, a lot more fuller. It's a lot warmer, I think. Uh, and she really expands on her kind of worldview here. She's got a very quirky and oblique way of looking at things. And the album title itself, Peacemaker, uh, has has a, a double meaning right. in, in that it's a reference to the peacemaker, the gun that won the West. So she's into yeah, the irony of the gun. There is kind of a Wild West feeling. Yeah. Tijuana brass, kind of down, down, down south the border or, type yeah, of down feeling. West, yeah. Uh, yeah. Start from you, Alan. Uh, I'd give it a very good four out of five. I think it's great. Solid four. You've been having a good week, Louise. This is a five for me. This is Whoa. a five. You loved it. I loved it. I just think it's so cinematic and just so unexpected. She's only thirty-four, okay. but yeah. There we go. Well, well done to her. Not depending on her father and mother at all, it would seem. Let's move on to album number three. Uh, the her being Vera Sol and Peacemaker. Album number three, Jay Mascus. Let's listen to a track called "Can't Believe We're Here." On the Uh, a little flavour of Can't Believe We're Here from Jay Mascus. Who are we talking about and is he as middle of the road as that track suggests, Louise Bruton? Well, 40 years strong and he is still standing in the one spot middle of the road. Uh, so he is more known for his band work with Dinosaur Jr. But this is his fifth solo outing. Mm. Um, Very different from Dinosaur Jr.? Um, <laughs> I mean, what, what's, what's black and what's not black? <laughs> <laughs> Jay Mascus usually would keep the electrics to his band work but this time he's brought in he's plugged in and it is a a sort of an underdog anthem after underdog anthem and misery persists and so does Jay Mascus Um, so he won't let down the existing fans and he won't attract any new ones on the basis of what you just said. Are you in, are you in accord with that, Alan? Uh, I, I, I think that I'm a fan of Dinosaur Jr. Uh, as you say, he has plugged in. This is much more of an electric album and he is an exceptional guitar player, it has to be said. In fact, in 1989, Kurt Cobain, who's no slouch on the keyboard himself or the fretboard himself, suggested that Mascus join Nirvana. So he's very well known for his distinctive guitar sound and there's more of that guitar sound on this solo album. This, this to me sounds pretty much like a Dinosaur Jr. album to tell you the truth. And the, the lyrics are just kind of lost in this haze of kind of like woe is me and no one understands me. But and he's got a great sense of humour. And just misery, is it? I don't think it's misery. I think he's kind of resigned but blissed out contentment is is his kind of state of mind. It's like a dazed, hazy wanderer with some very tasty guitar parts. I kind of enjoyed it. It's not great though. <laughs> I kind of enjoyed it. It's not great though. I don't think they'll be printing that on the on the poster or on the album cover. Um, uh, what are you saying, uh, Louise? I think y- you're not even as enthusiastic as Alan is. Well, just the the lyrics are just so downtrodden. He has a song called "Set Me Down," and you think it's going to be a song of an adventure and love and promise forever. But then the the, the lyric is, "Who needs it? I'm bleeding. Defeated to say goodbye." <laughs> okay. I think he might quote back you the lyric, uh, the title of another song. You don't understand me. <laughs> I don't. Yes. <laughs> what uh, what are you saying overall? I, I think this is a pretty damning uh, review overall for Jay Mascus uh, and Stars, Louise. Middling three for the middling Jay. A middling three for the middling Jay and Alan. Yeah, uh, I think the quality control needs to be checked on the next album. A, a three from me as well, Sean. A three from you as well. So you, the, the third album kind of 
pull you down from the dizzy heights of the previous two. Jem Askus, what do we do now? Vera Sola and her album Peacemaker and Prelude to Ecstasy from The Last Dinner Party are three albums uh, this evening. Uh, Alan Corr and Louise Bruton are reviewers. And as you might have guessed, we are going uh, a little bit earlier this evening. But before we do head off, let me tell you that Paula Shields and Leah Murphy were the researchers. Ollie Hamilton was the broadcast coordinator. Uh, Ashley Grufferty was on sound this evening and tonight's programme was produced by Kay Sheehy. And yes, indeed, we are leaving you a little bit earlier than usual on this Friday evening and we're leaving you for a very good reason indeed, as I'm sure many of you are aware this evening. Coming to us live is the France, uh, 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 France hosting Ireland in the first match of this year's Six Nations Championship. Let's hope it is a good start to the campaign and I hand you over now to RTE Sport.